From the Los Angeles Times, this is Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one Asian American guest about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian American. I'm one of your hosts, Jen Yamato. And I'm your other host, Tracy Brown. Today, we're joined by the writer Nicole Chung. You may know her from her writing on life, identity, and parenting, or from her social media presence, both of which have helped me get through this last year, particularly her work examining racism, grief, and Asian American identity. Her 2018 memoir, All You Can Ever Know, chronicles Nicole's upbringing in a white Catholic family, her adoption story, and her journey to learn more about her Korean birth parents. There are just all these little cultural touchstones big and small, that don't necessarily apply to adoptees. So then we're sort of left wondering, you know, we're clearly not white. I think most of us know that. (laughs) And so what is it that makes us Asian? Or what is it that connects us to other Asian American communities? Nicole is also an advice columnist at Slate, a former editor at The Toast, rest in peace to The Toast, and she's currently the editor-in-chief of Catapult Magazine. Our conversation with Nicole Chung coming up after this short break. Don't go anywhere. Do go anywhere. Just kidding. Hey, welcome back to Asian Enough. Here's our conversation with the writer, Nicole Chung. Thank you so much for joining us, Nicole. Thank you, Tracy, Jen. It's really good to be here. Let's start at the beginning. You were born to Korean immigrant parents, but you were adopted as an infant into a white Catholic family in a mostly white rural town in Oregon. So how did you first start developing your own sense of identity? Sure, sure. So, I mean, I will say I was the only Korean that I really knew until I left home. And it was formative in all kinds of ways. And at the same time, that's really hard to see when you're growing up there, when you're in the midst of it, when whiteness is just kind of the default around you, as it was for me. I did grow up in a very white area and it wasn't just like my family. It was my neighborhood. It was my school. Every school I went to pretty much, you know, it was definitely the church we went to. Um, It was one of those things where I definitely noticed from a young age, I noticed I didn't look like everyone. And also like it was pointed out to me in like many different ways by different people. I will say that I I don't think I began really noticing a lot or feeling self-conscious about it until I was old enough to go to school. So my early years and how many of us have that many memories of our early childhood, right? But the memories I do have, it's like, well, of course, I always knew that I was adopted. I don't remember being told. So I must have been told like... Around the time I was two or three is my guess, like when I was actually verbal. And I remember a few discussions, like my my main memory is asking my adoptive mother, my mom, like to tell me the story of my adoption. And I would ask for this like over and over when I was a kid. And I remember like sitting in her lap and hearing the story and it never changed. But growing up for me, it was so impossible and honestly still is impossible to separate like my Asian, my Korean identity from my adoptee identity. They are so, you know, bound together. Um, I started out in early childhood and I know that I look different from my white family, but it's just me and my parents, right? And sometimes a grandparent or another relative. So 
it was something I saw but didn't really think that much about until I started going to school and suddenly I'm like the only Asian kid in a class of like 25 kids. And that does not change, you know, year after year after year. And then like I started experiencing what really was like racism at school and I didn't have any language or framework for like discussing it or sharing that with the adults in my life. So my early identity formation, as much as I hate to admit it, was very much shaped by A, like isolation and B, like encountering prejudice from a young age. So there was a lot of negative association, I suppose, of what it meant uh, to be Asian in a very white area. And I didn't really have a chance to counter that with a lot of positive experiences or um, just like really knowledge of my heritage because I was completely cut off, you know, from my Korean heritage. You write about being told the story of your adoption, and I find it so interesting the approach that you take as a storyteller and how the concept of this foundational story was something that you began to question yourself, or at least have questions about. So what made you first wonder more about that foundational story? Uh, because it's so relatable, right? The, the stories that our parents tell us about the before times, before we can remember. And so for so long, right. that's all we know of ourselves. It's not until much later that you wonder, what am I missing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's such a universal experience, obviously not limited to adoptees. Exactly what you're saying, where we get this family lore that's given to us when we're too young to really question it. Um, and all the adults around us kind of present this as just indisputable fact, right? And then as you get older, I think it is a, a very common experience to start wondering about the things that are not shared and the gaps in the story and the places where, honestly, you figure out that people are just guessing or they're coming at it, of course, as we all do with our own biases and history. You know, you start wondering about maybe there's some estrangements in the family. Maybe there are people missing from the family reunion or the photo album. And you like really... I don't know, for me anyway, I guess I've always been a very curious person and kind of obsessed with mysteries. And I started to wonder about like the biggest mystery I could think of was the mystery of like my own life. I did not know really anything about my origins or the people I'd come from. And I did start to think about that old standby adoption story, which was like so comforting to me. Like I would say, I would say even now there are parts of it that I find myself still wanting to like cling to and think of as mine and feel ownership over and just like find refuge in. And at the same time, like as you get older, I think it's really common to start questioning like those foundational stories that you've always been told. And I could not help but notice that the the facts were pretty sparse and that there were things given that we had no contact at all with my birth family, did not even know their names. I started to find it interesting that my adoptive parents could be so sure about certain details, whether it was like they were very poor and wanted to give you a better life or they really wish they could keep you, but they couldn't. You know, I found myself wondering, like, how? How could we know this if we don't know anything about them? And I think another thing that really got me just wanting to to examine it more closely and really interrogate what had happened, if I could, was my perspective started to shift. I had always thought about it from my white family's perspective. That was the perspective I knew. Those were the facts that could actually be given to me with any certainty. Like I knew my parents very much wanted a child and then they heard about me and they believed it was God or fate or both. And then I started to wonder one day, like, well, you know, what about what my birth parents may have wanted? Like, what was their situation? And of course, like every adoption starts with this fundamental severing or loss, you know? And I just started wondering about basically the other side. And I had never 
I had never thought enough about it, or maybe I had not been encouraged. Maybe sometimes I had actually been discouraged from thinking about it from like my birth family's perspective or, or in terms of like what I myself might have lost. And I just reached a point starting in adolescence, but then I would, I think it slowly just gathered steam over the years. Um, sometimes more at the forefront, sometimes more in the background, but like more questioning, more wondering, and more like kind of wanting to flip that narrative and, and think about it from, you know, the perspective of my birth family. Not because I didn't love or like trust my adoptive family, just it was like I had only heard that one perspective. And there was a lot more obviously involved than that. That's really interesting to me because I didn't think about family lore so much until family, like ancestry tree assignments at school. But that never even felt like a real story that I had ties to. Hmm. Um, and I don't know why. And it wasn't until college where I started thinking, oh, like, I also have a story. Like, that's when I also started figuring out about my own identity, which um, you've also written about how college is an escape where you've met other Asians for the first time. You're able to find yourself, I guess. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? I think in one sense, college was a period of my life where I thought the least about being adopted. And that was because I was away from home for the first time. I was no longer the only Asian, far from it. Also, I was like separated from my adoptive parents. Uh, by a, There's a whole country between us. And so people didn't see me anymore just in the context of like my adoptive family. And so like I had grown up when I would be out with my parents, like, I mean, strangers would ask, like, where'd they get you? And even with people who knew us, let's say at church or at school, like, there's Nicole and her parents. She's adopted. It's very obvious. Like it was just this like fact that uh, whether I liked it or not was just constantly announced as soon as you saw me with my family. Um, and I got very used to getting questions about it and having to talk about it a whole lot. And then in college, it was the opposite experience. Like nobody ever saw me with my parents. It only came up if I brought it up. You know, it was only a subject of conversation if I wanted it to be. And it was like a pretty big change. I mean, I will say once or twice it might have come up in response to a question I got or a comment. Like I had a sweet mate in college who noticed I was not exactly like, I mean, not that we're all the same anyway, but you know, she was like, why are you like such a banana? And I had to explain to her, or I felt I should explain to her, oh, like it's cause I grew up with white parents. And she's like, oh, like that explains it, <laughs> which obviously didn't make me feel good. But I mean, sometimes it would come up in those contexts, but by and large, I could have spent four years not talking about it at all. And I was so busy with the normal college growing up things that you're doing that I, um, it was actually kind of easy for it to kind of slide into the background. Right. Or you could even now bring it up on your own terms when you chose to, how you chose to. Right. Right. And that was all new to me because I was so used to having this narrative imposed on me and feeling like I had to answer questions or like defend my family or explain it to other people. And I was called to do that from like probably when I was very, very young. And you mentioned like those heritage projects in school, Tracy. And like, I too remember vividly, like in first grade having, I think I was like person of the week or something. And when you were person of the week, you brought in this poster with like your family tree and pictures of you and your family. And of course, I did this without thinking much about it. But as soon as I sat down to share in our morning circle, all my classmates were like, why don't you look like your parents? Like, what's going on here? And so the whole thing became another exercise in like explanation. It was so much a part of my life, those explanations, telling that story. And then all of a sudden it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And so that was probably like the biggest change, you know, in terms of like when I left home. Um, if I thought about it, if I talked about it, it was my choice. I will say you just mentioned this term of being called a banana. 
For those people who do not know what a banana is, yellow on the outside, white on the inside. And these are terms that I heard a lot, too, because I grew up with a lot of white friends or I've heard like Twinkie, you know, Mm -hmm. all these very reductive food products for some reason that become these terms. Mm. There's another thing that you have written about doing since you're a kid, which is like coming up with this game that you kind of termed Count the Asian, mm-hmm. which is something that I've, I have a thousand percent done. Oh, we all have. Yeah. I still do that when I go to places as an adult. Like I've traveled to states in the U.S. and felt like, oh, I feel like I must be the only Asian person in this entire state right now. Mm-hmm. Or you make eye contact with the the people who work at the local like Asian restaurants and you're like, okay. Those are the only other Asian people in this town. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And like growing up where I did, I mean, I wrote this in the book, but I could go years without like clucking a new Asian. You know, I'd be like, these are the Asians I know about. Like the there was this couple who worked at the donut shop. They probably owned it. And they used to give me what my friends and I would term the Asian discount of like, I would get a dozen donuts and they would throw in an extra one or two. And it only happened with me. So they would always send me in. And I had a few Asian friends in high school, but I was the only Korean still Mm -hmm. that like I knew. So yeah, I mean, I was always really conscious of being the only one, very conscious of when I was not. And I still, I still find myself doing that when I go home. And one of my kids has also done the same thing. Like the first time, well, I don't know if it was the first time, but I mean, I've talked about race with my kids from a young age. And so I went home with my older daughter and I like see her looking around my my little one room airport at home and she like suddenly announces to me like, you and I are the only people of color here. (laughs) And I was like surprised and then surprised that I was surprised, you know, that she was doing that because of course I grew up doing that. Um, And you do that same thing when you're watching shows. I mean, I feel like I've joked to people that like if a show has at least two Asians, (laughs) I will probably have to give it a shot. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's something you grow out of, you know, when you grow up doing it. I don't know. But at least as an adult, you can kind of understand better why you ever did it and maybe find some different kind of purpose for it. Yeah. Um, I want to ask about your memoir you released in 2018, All You Can Ever Know. It's about your experience as a transracial adoptee. Um, And you've said before that you wrote it partly because there wasn't a whole lot out there to read about the adoption experience, period, let alone one um, that is of the transracial experience. And you also wrote that part of the catalyst for starting this search that you write about, the search for the story of your adoption, was uh, because you had become pregnant with your first child. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, then, why did you decide to write about it? What was the catalyst for turning that journey into a book? That's such a good question. I mean, why ever write and publish is a great question. (laughs) I should have a great answer. I mean, I will say I was not expecting I would write about it at the time I was searching for my birth family. Um, and there was like a gap of several years between my search and my reunion. And then like when I started even thinking about writing about it, writing about adoption always really scared me actually. Mm. Um, I guess the first time I really wrote something about it, it was in this little writing group that I was part of in Durham, North Carolina, where I was living at the time. And I'd never written nonfiction before. And I felt like some peer pressure to try to write about myself for the first time, even though I was like, sure, it wouldn't take and it wouldn't be interesting to me or to anybody. Um, And I was like, well, I will try writing about adoption 
and I will try writing a very honest piece. So like not doing that thing where I censor myself or try to like be the good adoptee or reassure people or make anyone feel comfortable. Like I'm just going to say what I want to say for like this audience of seriously, it's like four people. And even though it was only four people, it was terrifying to me. And like every draft I wrote felt like I was scraping a little deeper and it hurt. Like I was surprised how much it hurt. And then I was terrified to share it. And again, four people, but just the thought of sharing it with them was overwhelming. I think I ended up reading some of it in our group and my voice was shaking the whole time. And then I put that essay in a drawer and I have never shown it to anyone else. (laughs) And when I did eventually start writing about adoption a few years later, I think my next one was maybe when I was working at The Toast, like I'd just been hired. And one of the editors was like, by the way, if you ever want to write about race and adoption, feel free. You can write about anything you want here. And then whenever I did write about adoption, I would sort of tackle a different issue. Like I wrote a piece about why adoption crowdfunding kind of weirds me out. And I I mean, I wrote another piece about the first time I met my sister. And each time I would get this like remarkably generous feedback, like a few haters, but by and large, what I was hearing was, oh, like people are interested, they're curious, and it is an underrepresented perspective. And eventually just telling the story piecemeal was very difficult. And I decided, okay, like maybe it's a book. Maybe that's the only way to actually do justice to the whole story and like all of its nuances and all the people involved. But it was definitely like a very gradual process. Uh, I'm still sometimes really surprised (laughs) that I ended up writing memoir at all, actually. And then that this was the book that I wrote. And at the same time, I think it would have been hard for me to write any other memoir first. My adoption story is my origin story. You know, it's the foundational narrative of my life. All you can ever know is certainly not the story of my whole life. That wouldn't have been interesting. As my mother pointed out, I'm not famous, so nobody would read that. But like, I just feel like if I had tried to tell any other part of my like story first, it would have felt off to me. I really felt like I needed to like make space for myself and for an adoptee narrative, not the narrative, but a narrative. And um, I didn't see it a lot in mainstream publishing. And so this was sort of the book I had to write first. Can I say just, it is scary to write about identity. It is Mm -hmm. still frightening often for me to talk about identity and race and self-reflection in a public way. And it's often really hard. I super relate to that because like this podcast is probably the first time I'm having like public conversations about the Asian American part of my identity. You know, I've written stuff from like the queer perspective before. Mm-hmm. That one's easier to like scream loudly and like it's easier to turn things around against the haters, I think, or it has been for me. So these conversations and they're scary, <laughs> definitely. For sure. Yeah, no, I mean, I think... As someone who like is an editor and has been now for many years, I mean, I started at Hyphen actually and then moved to the Toast and I'm now at Catapult. I think maybe that has actually played a a big role in why I'm still writing in this genre because I do like work with and edit and publish writers sharing personal stories all the time. And I think a lot and have a lot of conversations with my writers and my fellow editors about like, you know, what are the responsibilities? What are the ethics of that? Both from a writing and a publishing perspective. One thing I think about a lot and something I tell students when I teach workshop is like, we all do have a tendency to write about like our trauma also. And like, it's very common to have like a 
an essay that is about your very worst or most painful experience. And it's not that that's not valid. And it's not that it can't really help someone who's reading it, because I think memoir and personal writing justifies its existence by making other people feel less alone. But that said, you don't owe anybody like your pain or your trauma. Think about just this past year alone and all of the trauma and the loss, the disappointment, the fear that we've all experienced during the pandemic. The writer's response does not have to be to take all that and make art for consumption. And I'm very grateful in my case that I did kind of take the time between, I guess, my search and my reunion and then starting to write about it. I wasn't ready to write this when it was all happening. I will say like I've had wonderful, generous feedback from a lot of people, but I hear from haters and I hear from people telling me that like, I clearly don't love my adoptive parents and I'm ungrateful and like, I bet they're ashamed of you. And if I got this stuff 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I think it would have been deeply devastating for me. As it is, I don't like it. <laughs> like, it doesn't feel good, but it doesn't make me want to stop writing. It doesn't make me ashamed. It doesn't get under my skin and make me think like deep down, oh God, are they right about me? I'm at a place in my life where I wouldn't say it rolls off my back, but I can I can cope with it. And it doesn't make me want to stop sharing or writing. Maybe sometimes in some cases, what it does take is time. And who are you trying to reach? I guess just remembering that when you share stories, whether it's on this podcast or in writing, you're never sharing them for the haters. There's always going to be people who don't care or don't get it, but you are writing or you're talking or you're producing work for the people who will get it. And there are always going to be people like that out there, but it is, it's like terrifying. I don't think it ever, it will ever not be a little bit. And to this day, if I have an essay going up the next day, like it's really hard to sleep and I yes. know the day of, the day of I'll be running on coffee and adrenaline and my stomach will be upset. That is always what happens. Um, all this to say, like, it gets easier, but it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you about the nerve. More of our conversation with Nicole coming up after this short break. Stay with us. Welcome back to Asian Enough. Here's the rest of our conversation with writer Nicole Chung. We're talking about like scary, vulnerable things. One of the things you write about in your book is how um, your parents were instructed by, I think, the judge who confirmed your adoption to just, quote unquote, assimilate you. Especially now, words like assimilation and being colorblind and even like melting pot. Like we think about them in very different ways now in 2021. What was your reaction, I guess, when you heard the word that was used to assimilate? I was surprised. So I was adopted in the early 80s. And it wasn't just the judge, actually. It was also like the social worker who interviewed them. It was like their adoption agency. It was their adoption attorney. Pretty much everyone they ever consulted who they would have considered an adoption expert who worked in the field told them the same thing, uh, which was, it's not really going to matter her race, just she's your kid. And that's that's all that matters. My mother has hilariously said, like, I thought at least someone would recommend a book, but like nobody recommended anything. And she was really struck by the word assimilate. I don't think it's a word that my parents would have like come up with on their own, but she always remembered it. That was the exact word that judge used. Just assimilate her. Everything will be fine. There's nothing in particular you need to worry about, you know, just because you're white and she's Korean. It was just like any old adoption to him. So my reaction to that 
Mm, like growing up, I guess maybe I wouldn't have questioned it so much because I was raised in a household that I don't really believe in like that my parents were race blind. You know, I don't believe anybody is, but that was like the line. And I would say both at home and at school, that was the overwhelming attitude we were presented with. And so I didn't necessarily question that assimilation line when I was younger, but of course, like when I got older and started reading more and thinking more and like just after also more years of accumulated experience where I knew, I knew damn well race was extremely relevant to my life and my experience, how other people viewed me, how I viewed myself. So I think it was like harder for my my parents to like understand and accept that because it is really hard to understand a prejudice or an experience that you yourself don't have. And it completely flew in the face of everything they'd been told when they adopted me. And, and it's not what they wanted for you to experience, I'm sure, either. Right. Like, of course, no parent likes to think of their child being hurt by anything. And like in my parents' case, you know, their feeling was always, well, like, we don't care about your race. And no, they weren't race blind, but no, they also didn't care that I was Asian. Like, I wasn't like their Asian daughter, or their Korean daughter. I was just their daughter. I think they just thought because it didn't matter to them, like it shouldn't matter to other people. Um I don't know, like I would have these discussions with my mom where she would talk about like relatives of ours, like people in her family. And she really believed that none of our relatives could be racist because, well, all they really cared about is whether you were a good person or not. Like that was just so much the level on which, not just my family, but a lot of, I think a lot of white people operate where it's all about intentions and even like one-to-one relationships maybe with people of color and not like being aware of or being able to discuss more systemic um, Mm. prejudice. Yeah. Well, I think in the 80s, so many conversations were relatively naive, which we can now see. And I'm thinking about my own parents who never Mm. talked to me about race or racism. As long as I can remember, they never brought it up as a thing that I might have to confront out in the world. You know, mm-hmm. and it's certainly something that they had experienced themselves, but it was literally never talked about. And I don't know if that was, you know, wishful thinking or some sense of optimism that I would never have to deal with it, uh, which obviously was not the case. But I wonder, how do you feel like the conversations around transracial, transnational adoption have changed since you first started sort of hearing about it? And really most importantly for this conversation where we are not adoptees, what is still missing from the conversations around adoption that should be looked at now, should be discussed? Yeah, I mean, I think one big change that's easy to point out is that at the time I was growing up, it was not nearly as common for people to talk about ways for adoptive families to really honor and include their child's like birth culture or culture of origin within the family. And so these days I know like there are tons of culture camps, there are homeland tours. I mean, families do things like language lessons and cooking classes and all sorts of things. What's still harder is having like really frank conversations about race and privilege and like white supremacy in America. I recognize that it's difficult. I think maybe that is an area where, you know, there still needs to be you know, to get really specific, although like I am not, I'm not trying to be prescriptive and I'm not an expert, but like there does need to be like much more, I think, comprehensive training 
or adoption industry professionals working with prospective adoptive parents. I don't know. There are definitely probably some agencies that are better at this than others. These conversations, some of them have actually realized they need they need help. They need like transracial adoptees and our voices. And sometimes they will enlist or even pay us to like speak with parents. But, you know, I think of that as important, but also, I don't know, it's not going to reach everybody that it needs to reach because you're going to have to reach every prospective adoptive parent. And we know from studies that many white parents don't talk to their kids about racism. It's something parents of color do and we have to, or at least like many of us feel we have to. Uh, so there's all, already kind of this gap, whether we're talking adoptive families or not, in terms of who is really talking to their children about the reality and like what's required of them and like what solidarity can look like or demand of them. Um, those are really important discussions to have with kids, regardless of their race. So, you know, ever since we started this podcast, our listeners have wanted the adoptee experience covered and it really just has hammered home to me how little there is out there in the conversation about just even just sharing individual experiences. Yeah. I don't, again, I don't, I don't want to, and I try really hard not to speak for like Asian or Korean adoptees as a group, you know, there is no like one monolithic narrative, but I would say like a common thread that runs through a lot of my conversations with fellow, let's say Asian adoptees. You know, there is this feeling of, of not being Asian enough, you know, not to <laughs> not to steal your title. But I kind of laughed when I heard the name. And then when I started thinking about like all the times I have not felt Asian enough, I mean, it will be very hard to pick one. I think a lot of the ways we talk about Asian American identity in this country, it's, it's not that it's exclusionary or like at least not on purpose to the adoptee experience. And also it's not that it's not valid and fine and good to share like common experiences. It's just that some of those experiences can feel like, oh, like what's our place in this? You know, we obviously did not grow up with Asian parents, <laughs> um, at least many of us. And so like, what's our identity? How do we fit in if like, I don't know, if we didn't learn to use chopsticks at home? Like I remember consciously going out and learning to use them like in my teens or little things like taking off your shoes when you go into a home but yeah, I don't know. There are just all these little cultural touchstones, big and small, that don't necessarily apply to adoptees. So then we're sort of left wondering, you know, we're clearly not white. I think most of us know that. <laughs> and so what is it that makes us Asian? Or what is it that connects us to other Asian American communities? I, I don't know. I just, I tend to think of like my Asian and my adoptee identities as so linked. You know, I can't really separate them. And so... I think what a lot of adoptees are probably looking for is just an acknowledgement and space within our communities to say, like, this has been our experience and who we are. And it doesn't make us less Korean or Chinese or Asian. I want to go back to something you mentioned just a little bit earlier about how, how white adoptive parents don't address race a lot. In March, you wrote a, a Time article wondering how your white family might have understood what you and every Asian American person has been feeling amid the rising anti-Asian racism this past year. And there's a portion of the article we'd like you to read, if that's okay. Would they be concerned about me? Would they understand why I cried when I told my own Korean American daughters about the spa shootings? Would I have reached out to them during this past hard, heavy week or held back? uncertain of how to share my fear and rage as the only Asian in my white family. Thank you. 
I think what resonated to me about that article is actually the reverse. Like it made me think about just the idea of conversations we can't have with our parents, you know, after they've passed. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad died when I was like 22 and he was biracial, but I never, it was like a conversation we never had. Like I never really thought about my dad as Asian American, even though he definitely is. Me understanding my biracial, like Asian American identity came after he had already passed. So the article kind of made me think about, like, what were the conversations we'd be having now? Mm-hmm. Uh, before the, the spa shootings, which was sort of like this moment where I feel many of us had not like exactly seen it coming, but had dreaded something like it, you know, ever since the pandemic started and the scapegoating and the racism. I, I don't know, like I remember hearing from a lot of Asian friends who are saying they were checking up on their parents and very worried about them and their parents in turn were very worried too. And everyone was telling everyone else to be careful. And then um, my adoptive mother had passed away quite recently and my father died a few years ago. So they were not telling me to be careful, but I remember just wondering like, God, I wonder what they would have noticed. I wonder what they might've said. And then I I was talking with fellow adoptees. And again, like I'm not trying to say, white adoptive parents don't talk to their kids about racism. Um, I know there probably are many who do, but like the people I was talking with and hearing from were saying like, yeah, nobody in my adoptive family has brought it up. And they were really hurt by like the silence of not just parents, but like siblings and grandparents and other loved ones. Like they were in turmoil and they were scared and they were angry. And it felt like the people really closest to them, it was like completely not even registering. So this essay just came from a place of like, Yeah, I think like just not being able to talk with my adoptive parents about it and also just wanting to have a little bit of space maybe in the conversation for what Asian American adoptees could be feeling, what I was feeling anyway, in the midst of the rise in anti-Asian harassment and violence. Because we have a lot of overlapping fears and worries, but then ours are like different, you know, like we're not going to be worried about our white parents, but it's also harder to have these discussions with our white families, or it can be. Um, so that was that was just something that I wanted to make a little bit of space for in the conversation, if I could. So yeah, that was kind of where that came from. I do have a question for the room, and I will say this is based in my own experiences. But why is it so hard to talk to white folks sometimes about racism? And about anti-Asian racism. I say this with love, too, because these are conversations, really hard conversations that I have had with close friends and, and people that I love and respect and trust. But they have been some of the hardest conversations that I've ever had about it. That is a great question. Yes. Can we find the answers in this conversation right now? (laughs) Yes. Yes. We're also going to solve it right here. Um, Now, I think that like, um, I go back and forth between feeling like, oh, like I'm so good at this, like, because I've grown up doing this. I had no choice but to sort of be this. I mean, I've used different terms over the years, race ambassador, like (laughs) Asian representative, my token Asian family member, like whatever. But like I have kind of grown up comforting and placating to like explaining to like arguing with white family, feeling like you have to see this part of me and acknowledge it. We have to talk about it. You have to see how racism does affect my life. 
I mean, maybe you'd rather not, but if we're going to have an honest relationship, that is what's required. I've been doing this in very subtle and very unsubtle ways, like my whole life. So sometimes I kind of think like, oh, like, Nicole, you're pretty good at this. It must just be all the experience you have. And then like, I would have a conversation with a white family member or friend that I felt, you know, just set us both back like many, many steps. And I would be like, okay, actually you suck at this. Like you've learned nothing. And you grow up not doing it. Some of us like- Oh, it's easier not to. Yeah, because I had an outlet to be Japanese with like other immigrant family kids. So when I was with my white family, I'm like, oh, this is where I just don't think about that. Like, this is just a place where race doesn't exist right now. Yeah. Well, Nicole, there's this piece that you wrote for The Toast, and it was about this time at a Christmas holiday dinner party Mm. where you encountered microaggression at the dinner table from another person at the party. And I found it not maybe instructive because I'm not sure that uh, an answer could be found in in such a situation. Mm -hmm. But I I found it really helpful to read um, because I have had to make that decision in my mind. We So many of us have had to go through that thought process where it's like time slows down and you have to ask yourself, how do I want to react? Do I want to take it all the way to 11? Do I need to keep it at a five? How is this going mm-hmm. to play with everybody around me? It's this sort of impossible debate that you have with yourself in the moment. Uh, but it was so helpful to know that I was not the only one who has had to weigh the pros and cons of, do I get in in my feelings in front of all these people? Or do I want to take the time to turn this into a teaching moment? Or do I want to like flip the table? Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's been a while since I thought about that piece. It's called like what goes through your mind because that's exactly what it is. It's like time does slow down. That was probably like 30 seconds I spent maybe less deliberating my options and weighing them and thinking like who would support me? Who would be horrified? What would like every possible repercussion be? of what I said, um, depending on how snarky it was. And it felt like an hour. It felt like an hour that I was turning that over and it was really just a few seconds because all you ever have is a few seconds to decide. I mean, when I think about that piece now, I just always think about good intentions and how so often we expect good intentions to get us really far. And then you start thinking about who just expects the benefit of the doubt, like they can say anything and they just expect it won't be taken a certain way. And then on the flip side, like who never gets the benefit of the doubt? It is always considered like somehow so much more offensive to certain people to point out a racist or problematic comment than it is to actually say that thing. Yet another way that privilege functions is just in whose intentions are supposed to matter, you know, whose feelings and comfort are supposed to matter in those situations. And yes, it does still happen over and over. And I still have to think about what and when, you know, and how I'm going to respond. For me, it connects a lot to my experiences this last March um, when I didn't realize how many other Asian Americans were having the same reactions and the same emotions and the same feelings of isolation 
and despair and sadness, really, until I started seeing other people write about it and tweet about it and talk about it. Um, so that is another thing that I really appreciate in your work, that you have shared and written about this ongoing sort of experience and speaking a lot to things that I myself have struggled to vocalize and struggled to process. But I see you able to write about these things and it's really helpful. Thank you. I mean, I feel that way about the work of so many people, like including you, Jen, but I think we're all kind of just doing our best to illuminate whatever small, small corner of the experience we can. And I think um, as Asian women too, there is, I don't like to generalize, but I sometimes will encounter real surprise or like resentment. And I wonder how much of it is because people do not expect an Asian woman, especially to be vocal or to be angry or to call out racism. You know, I didn't intend to talk about the toast so much at this interview, (laughs) like it closed, it closed five years ago, but I will say like we moderated comments there and I saw like every terrible deleted comment on like one of my writer's pieces and somehow the very worst comments, and we got a lot of crap, but the very worst were on pieces about racism by Asian women. There was something about a vocal, angry Asian woman talking about racism that like just I mean, there would be like so many terrible deleted comments and it happened on my pieces there too. So (laughs) it was, it was definitely something that I was very aware of in some ways, just by speaking out, I'm defying a stereotype, you know, we all are and what does that mean and how does that threaten people? Okay, uh, so it's now time for our weekly segment called Asian Enough Confessions, formerly known as Bad Asian Confessions, where we share a time or thing that has made us feel that we're not Asian enough, although we've done a lot of that already on this episode, Uh, but it's so that we can all unpack these things together. And I am going to go first uh, with something that I kind of thought about as we were talking in this conversation. So my confession is about how for a really long time in my life, even through young adulthood, I did feel this need to have a sense of humor to placate other people's feelings about my otherness or my Asian-ness. And I mean, uh, my white friends or even strangers or my friend's parents. And I love parents. I love people's parents. So... I would have this inclination to sort of lean into humor and be like, hey, yeah, it's the Asian friend. I'm the Asian friend. Um, It's not something that I still feel or or really do anymore, but it's definitely something that I think that I leaned on to make it easy for everybody. Um, But also I think maybe I was really presumptive about the need to do that kind of thing. So that's what I'm here to confess today. And to sit and think about. Yeah, that accommodation is like so real. I don't know. Like I'll laugh until this uncomfortable moment of me feeling like passes. Yeah, that's relatable too. (laughs) Um, All right, uh, confessions. I've done so many of, I feel, deep ones. Here's one I've been holding on to. When I speak in Japanese, I speak in the third person because... Japanese language is so gendered. Like, there are ways that girls say I, and there are ways that boys say I. 
and I did not like it. <laughs> so as a kid, I would just refer to myself by my name, and I have never grown out of it. Like, I am almost 40, and when I'm speaking Japanese to, like, actual respectable, you know, like, elderly people, I'm like, oh, I just talked to myself about myself in third person again. I kind of <laughs> love that. Yeah, I like that you made that choice for yourself. Yeah, and, like, from a young age, because there's so much that we don't think to push back on, you know, when we're younger, but you did. That's, I think that's cool. Thanks for sharing, both of you. I mean, there are, like, so many moments I can think of. Anytime anyone is going on about, like, like I referenced before, just like Asian traits or common Asian experiences. I'm like, well, like going through the list, like, nope, nope, nope. Hmm. I will say like, and this wasn't even a negative experience. It was like kind of a positive one. But like when I started to correspond with my biological sister, so my, I have a sister, a full sister who was, who is also Korean American. She was unlike me born in Korea and then came here, but she spent most of her life here. And is also what she would describe as very Americanized, you know, whatever that means. Anyway, when we first started like talking, it was long distance because we were across the country from each other and we were not ready to like leap into like an in-person meeting. We were like pen pals more than anything else. We were both really comfortable in writing. So we wrote almost daily to each other for like a year. And then like one of our first phone conversations when we hadn't had many yet, she was like, oh my God, you, you sound so American. Like you, <laughs> she was like, everything about your voice and the way you talk just screams like American. <laughs> and like, I did feel in that moment, like, oh God, like even my sister who did not mean anything cruel, but she was not trying to gatekeep. She was not trying to make me feel any way. And I did not feel bad. It was more like, oh, like you noticed. And I had, it had never before occurred to me that like the way I spoke or moved or talked. And she later was like, yep, your body language is also very American. It never occurred to me that that could be something that she would automatically pick up on. I share it because it wasn't like a negative experience because I love my sister and she loved me. It was just, oh, I had not thought about that before. That's so interesting because I felt kind of a version of that when I went to Japan because I don't speak Japanese and I've always felt like a terrible Japanese American person for, for not speaking Japanese. But I did go once with family and walking through crowds, I felt they can tell. They can tell that I'm American. They probably can. <laughs> I'm, I'm scared to go to Korea without my sister. I'm like, I'm going to need you to come. And it's not even about like language or whatever. I just, I'm going to need somebody who like, I don't know, can like pass because it's going to be very obvious to everyone that I can't. I mean, my birth father's also commented on how American I am. And I kind of want to be like, that's a little bit rich coming from you. Like, you know exactly why. And like, even if I were not adopted, like you moved here. So I would have grown up here. Anyway, he, he thinks he thinks both my sister and I are like very slash too, I don't know, American. And I'm kind of like, well, what did you expect to happen when you moved here and also placed me for adoption? <laughs> Now that you've heard our Asian Enough confessions, we want to hear yours. Call us at 213-986-5652. That's 213-986-5652. And that's a wrap for this episode of Asian Enough. Thank you to Nicole Chung for joining us. And thank you, you out there. You're the one. You're the one I'm talking to. Thank you for listening. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Jen Yamato. And by me, Tracy Brown. Our producer is Asal Asanapur, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, 
and our original music was composed by Andrew Epen. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Jeff Berkshire, James Reed, and Matt Brennan. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of our founding producer, Lina Anwar. Come back next week as we rewind to the very beginning of Asian Enough. We'll be revisiting our debut episode from March 2020 when actor John Cho joined me and co-creator Frank Shang for a revealing conversation about fatherhood, fame, and the stories our parents tell us. I look around and I think I see, um, and this is different from our fathers. Our fathers did not grow up with that. They, they, they come here and they experience racism, but nobody's changing their minds about who they are. You know, my dad is Korean. He's a man. He's proud of who he is. He, he knows who he is. And you can ching-chong him to death. He doesn't give a shit. But us, his, his sons, we're different. We, when we were soft and malleable, we got told we weren't worth anything. And then we believe them. And remember, support your local donut shop. And if you get that Asian discount, never take it for granted. There was this couple who worked at the donut shop. They probably owned it. And they used to give me what my friends and I would term the Asian discount of like, I would get a dozen donuts and they would throw in an extra like one or two. And it only happened with me. So they would always send me in.